epic tales of mystery and magic to accounts of battle and empire from the verses of ancient poets to the masterpieces of our times a light on literature brings to life China's literary heritage and a look at the world in a new light Hi, I'm Huang Rei, and on today's A Light on Literature, we continue to present the book The Sound of Salt Forming, short stories by the post-80s generation in China, published by the Foreign Language Teaching and Research Press in 2016. On today's show, we will present you a story of the end of the world, a sci-fi short story written by Fei Dao and translated by David N. C. Hall. Please enjoy the story. When my mother was young, she told my father that she wouldn't marry him even if he were the last man left in the entire world. These words hurt my father deeply. He turned his grief into strength and pulled himself up, eventually becoming a full-time space maintenance worker. A man stationed tens of thousands of feet in the sky, fulfilling the hopes of a far-off humanity, far-off Earth, and my far-off mother. Later, when my father was the last man left in the entire world, she married him. When my father was accompanying the stars in that gloomy, claustrophobic space station, in addition to his work. He put all his effort into building his hatred toward my mother, swearing that he would never love any woman again for the rest of his life. Later, my father came back to Earth and married her, because by then she was the only woman left in the entire world. He had no choice. Not too long ago, humanity had no idea that it was about to be eliminated. Because of this blind optimism. Before the catastrophe, people had made no preparations at all. The disappearances occurred methodically. According to statistics, the people who disappeared included the following types: yes men, good for nothings, heroes, villains, drop dead beauties, hideously uglies, global billionaires, street beggars. Basically, wherever there were people, there were people disappearing. All populations were treated perfectly equally, embodying something beyond the principle of impartiality of good and evil. The population problem that had vexed humanity for so many years seemed to have reached a fundamental solution. The humanity problem that had vexed God for so many years seemed to have reached a fundamental solution. The panic that ensued is hardly worth mentioning. It was only a moment of chaos in the days before the last days of the world. People like to describe it like this: so and so had been nothinged. This shorthand was simple, and the meaning was clear. It was perfect. Some people said that God had begun the work of cleansing the world. Others figured that it was aliens kidnapping people for some reason, maybe for slave labor. Some authors, with a bit richer imagination, thought that a higher civilization was sending their beloved Earthlings to a more perfect dimension, where they would live loftier lives. 
but that was too far-fetched, so no one paid any attention to it. The globe became peaceful. Everyone stopped all wars. For the first time in history, and also the last, they joined together as one against the common enemy, determined to put a stop to such contemptible behaviour. All resources were put toward that goal. The entire globe was organised. A group of exceptionally active writers emerged from every corner of the world, and they wrote a myriad of works suffused with the mood of the end days and the solitude of the end of human culture. The majority of these people were soon nothing. So, they left many unfinished opuses to the ages. The philosophers took advantage of every second. In the panic of not knowing when they would disappear without a trace, they raced to establish who knows how many fresh theoretical systems. None of the philosophers and theologians were interested anymore in how humans came to be. Instead, they focused on how humans came not to be. Of course, the most practical and most worthy of respect were the scientists. They united the remaining masses of labourers, and, at a startling speed, they constructed a global self-service survival system, GSSS, in order to ensure that if by some chance someone survived, they could continue to survive, to carry on the ancestral sacrifices, to carry forward the line, with the hopes that human civilization might return like a hermit on Dongshan. On the day this project was completed, there were about 50 scientists remaining on the planet. They wept deeply moved. It was only then that people discovered what it meant to unite as one against the myriad of difficulties. Dozens of brilliant minds and hundreds of mediocre ones. What a pity that this moving internationalist spirit came just a little too late. Otherwise, life might have been a little more beautiful. That evening, the heroes among this group resolved to push forward and go without sleep, determined to see whether one of their friends might disappear under the gaze of the group. By the following morning, the 50 heroes were all gone. You have been listening to A Story at the End of the World, a short story selected from the book The Sound of Salt Forming, short stories by the post-80s generation in China, edited by Song Gong and Yang Qingxiang, and published by the Foreign Language Teaching and Research Press. The writer Fei Dao was born in Chufang in Inner Mongolia in 1983. His real name is Jia Li Yuan. He has a PhD degree from Tsinghua University. His science fiction short story, A Story of the End of the World, has been translated into Italian and included in international volumes of science fiction literature. A film based on the story was awarded the second award for film scripts by young writers. This was the cause of grief among all people at the time. Everyone felt an unmatched bitterness at this affront to human dignity. Through discussions, they decided to make one last effort of resistance. The remaining 10,000 or so people relinquished their own privacy, using the GSSS cameras that blanketed the entire area to observe themselves at all times. They would use the system to record every minute, every second of every person's life, and assuming there would be some people that didn't disappear, there would be people left to watch the video. They had to see how exactly people vanished. Even if we die, everyone thought, we should understand how. And then, in a split second, it's difficult to say exactly when, 10,000 or so people were utterly nothing. Life is so cruel. 
in the end, it makes you just give up. By this time, there were only one man and one woman left in the world. It seemed that the catastrophe had ceased. At least, they both died naturally and weren't nothinged. You could say that what the last male and female couple left on the earth had to deal with was a little easier than what Adam and Eve had to deal with in their day. At least, there was the incredible GSSS that would give them clothing and food without any trouble. From that point of view, in its last gasping breath, it was possible that civilization might not have reached its final breaking point. Many difficulties were created due to the random distribution of the disappearances. The realm of human resources, for example, met with particularly frightening difficulties. It was nearly impossible for any order to go from conception to issuance to the final correct implementation. This problem was particularly amusing. Pending further analysis, the most unfortunate result caused by this problem at the time was this. Because of the chaotic management, my father was almost left out in space. If it hadn't been for some person in charge at some point in some situation, who later for some reason unexpectedly thought of some things and then issued some order which was able to achieve some degree of correct implementation, my father would certainly have been abandoned tens of thousands of feet up, accompanying the stars in the coldness of space on the eve of the elimination of humanity. Of course, if that had happened, it might have been a relief for him. In the end, he did come back to Earth. As soon as he opened the capsule door, my father saw the automatic machinery of the GSSS. Unmanned surveillance drones, unmanned excavators, unmanned transports, automatic heaters, automatic harvesters, automatic massagers, automatic hamburger machines, and all manner of that sort of thing, all flew back and forth nearby, calmly and unhurriedly working on as if nothing had happened. There were no bouquets or applause. There wasn't a single person paying attention to him. It seemed that as far as the eye could see, under a limitless sky, all land bounded by seas was in a serene and harmonious, peaceful golden age. The entire world was utterly without flaw. The only thing that might make you call it desolate was that not one person could be seen. Later, in front of the massive computer that managed the entire GSSS, my father, with lips trembling, asked, Tell me, am I the last one? The computer scanned the entire globe with lightning speed and answered it in a deep voice that he was not. He had a partner. My father found my mother and he married her. Even though they had once hurled the most malicious words at each other, now that there were only the two of them left in the world, they realized they could never leave each other again. They must come together. This was a duty and an obligation, but it was also a necessity born from the depths of their souls. From that point on, they very rarely spoke. They were able to reach agreement on anything by just looking silently at each other. They lived together. It was ordained by heaven. They found a run-down church in the countryside and put on their formal clothes. There was no one there to ask them the question. They just stared at the cross that faced them and spoke the two words, I do. With the aid and protection of the GSSS, they toured the entire world. From Niagara Falls to the African deserts, from the pyramids to the Great Wall, from the Louvre to the Empire State Building. What they had now was the time and energy to roam the empty globe. 
They rode in pilotless planes across mountain peaks and oceans, flying alone through the layered clouds, facing the endless brilliant light. This endless honeymoon was so very free and easy, and so very full of anguish. During the day, they would always hold hands, and at night, they would fall asleep holding each other. Not for a split second would one leave the other, out of a primal fear that in one moment of negligence, they might never be able to see one another again. They would only live or die together resolutely unwilling to let one person disappear and leave the other to face the unfathomable grief. They had no one else that you could rely on anymore. They were dependent on each other. After my mother gave birth to me, she fell into postpartum depression. One day, she felt that she no longer needed my father. While he was sleeping, she let go of the hand she had held for so many years, got up, and left. She walked a long way away, severed an artery, and quietly lay down. My father found my mother and buried her. From that point on, my father grew so miserable. As he raised me, he never smiled at me. Of course, he wasn't brutal either. When I began to understand things and was able to study on my own, he aged beyond recognition overnight. He died grasping my hand tightly, saying that he never in his entire life had really hated my mother. He loved her. Now, they are at rest, and they have left me all by myself, utterly alone. Sometimes I wonder if perhaps God couldn't take seeing all the hatred in the world of humans anymore, and so he asked, all the extraneous people to step aside for a moment, leaving only my father and my mother to let them learn how to get along. What you just heard was the story of the end of the world from the book The Sound of Salt Forming, short stories by the 80s generation in China. Now let's move on to the next story from the same book, which is titled Invisible Planets. Please enjoy the story. Tell me about some enchanting planets. I don't like cruel and disgusting places, you say. All right. I grin and nod my head. Of course, no problem. Sisilajia is an enchanting planet whose flowers and lakes leave all visitors with unforgettable memories. In Sisilajia, you won't see a single inch of bare earth. Every bit of ground is covered by flora, anua grass as fine as silk, cool qingqing trees that tower into the clouds, and so many kinds of wondrous fruits that most people can't name, can't even describe their appearance wafting their alluring fragrance. Sisi Lajayans have never had to worry about their existence. Their lifespan is very long, their metabolism very slow, and they have very few natural enemies. They pick all kinds of fruits to eat and live inside the Aikaya tree. This kind of tree is ring-shaped, the inner diameter of which is just large enough for a full-grown person to lie down in comfortably. And so, from generation to generation, they live inside the Akaya tree. When it is sunny, 
Their branches fan out on all sides, and when it rains, they spread out wide, so that their leaves pop open like large umbrellas. When first coming to Sicilia, everyone is mystified. They don't know how civilization can emerge on this kind of planet because, as they see it in a place that lacks danger and competition, life can go on perfectly well without any need for knowledge. But this place really does have civilization. It is indeed beautiful and dynamic, and highly creative. The first impression many have when they arrive is that when they are older, they would like to come here to enjoy their golden years. Most of them figure that the main impediment would be that they aren't used to the food, and so they lose no time in cautiously sampling every kind of fruit here. Then, after they have lived here for a while and have appreciated enough of the local feasts, they are surprised to learn that they love every kind of food here and every kind of flower. But they can't stand life in this place, especially the elderly. They really can't stand it. From the moment of their birth. Sicilian giants start learning how to lie. In fact, this is the most important aspect of their lives. Their whole lives, they are always fabricating, fabricating stories that did happen and stories that didn't, writing them down, drawing them, singing about them, but never remembering them. They have never cared whether or not language conformed to reality. Amusement is their only standard in speech. If you ask them about the history of Sicilia, They'll tell you a hundred different versions, and no one will refute anyone else's view because every single moment they are engaged in self-refutation. On Sicilia, people are always saying, "Okay, I'll do it," and they never actually do a thing. Absolutely, no one takes this kind of talk to be the truth. But having all kinds of engagements makes life richer and more colourful. Only in a very limited set of circumstances will people actually do what they say they are going to do, but that always requires a very particular reason. If there is a meeting and both parties happen to honour the commitment, they will often unite and live together. Of course, this sort of thing is far from common, and most people live their lives alone. Sicilian giants don't feel that there is anything wrong with this. Quite the opposite. When they hear about other planets' difficulties with overpopulation, they are all the more convinced that their own planet is the one with the best understanding of life. Because of this, Sicilia gave birth to particularly glorious literature, fine art, and historical studies, becoming a cultural center that was known far and wide. People from abroad came in admiration. Hoping that in the grasses beneath the canopy of some tree, they'd get to hear the locals' extemporaneous stories about their family. Some people have wondered whether it is possible to create a stable society on a planet such as this. They always imagine Sicilia as a chaotic state without government or commerce, but they are wrong. Sicilia's government is civilized and flourishing, and the fruit export trade has carried on steadily for centuries. The linguistic mode of lying has never troubled their progress. In fact, has served to promote it. The only thing Sicilia lacks is science. Every man of wisdom knows something of the wonders of the world, but these scraps have never had the chance to come together. You have been listening to Invisible Planets, a short story selected from the book The Sound of Salt Forming. Short stories by the post-80s generation in China, edited by Song Gang and Yang Qingxiang, and published by the Foreign Language Teaching and Research Press. The author of the short story, Hao Jingfeng, born in 1984 in Tianjin, is a science fiction writer. 
In 2016, she won the Hugo Award for Best Novelette for her science fiction, Folding Beijing. She works as a macroeconomics researcher at China Development Research Foundation. Pimuyati is another place that will leave you unable to make sense of history. In this planet's museums, restaurants, and hotels, you will be able to hear different versions of stories of bygone days. You will be baffled because every narrator's expression is so sincere that you have to believe them. But not a single one of those stories is compatible with the others. The landscape of Pimuyati is inscribed with marvelous tales. Strictly speaking, it almost can't be called a spherical planet. The difference in elevation between the northern and southern hemispheres is dramatic. A nearly vertical cliff face continuously wraps horizontally around the region of the equator, separating the planet into two sharply contrasting worlds. The top is capped with pure white snow and ice, and the bottom is wrapped in a boundless cerulean sea. Yet the cities are built atop this seemingly never-ending wall. Delicately hollowed-out buildings and roads traversing top to bottom, just like a giant painting subjected to surveying rays of light. No one really knows the history of this state's establishment. What you will hear is merely the current residents' version of a romantic narrative. Every story is moving. Some are marvelous tales washed in blood, some tragic and desolate, and there are tales of love that make one weep. Of course. Such intensity hinges on the age and sex of the narrator. No one can offer a conclusion that everyone will believe, and in this manner, Pimuyati is passed on orally between lips and teeth, growing day by day more and more mysteriously enchanting. Many people are drawn in by the wondrous landscape and stories here, and so they stay, reluctant to leave. This is an incomparably open and accepting planet. Where every visitor is warmly welcomed and lives a life of happiness. When visitors decide to stay, they too build a home on the face of the precipice and tell the stories they have heard to newly arriving guests. Completely content, they gradually become new residents of the place. This intoxication continues until one day, unexpectedly, they become aware of the real truth of things. All of a sudden. They find that the history of Pimuyati has indeed already been revealed in the infinitesimally fine traces. Actually, everyone here is the same. Actually, this planet only has visitors, and there are no true citizens of Skyons. That's right. Pimuyati has always been a place with a magnificent history, but for some unknown reason, it was cast aside. The people of Pimuyati abandoned their homeland. Leaving behind an empty, shimmering city, causing those who had mistakenly come here to stare in wide-eyed wonder. They also left behind the incomprehensible scraps and smatterings of their language, perhaps having planted a few scant clues in the crevices of their buildings, leaving it to them to perchance plant roots or grow sprouts in the brains of those who would come later, and grow into the most florid fantasy of this planet's past. No one knows who found this citizenless country. The visitor's history that was passed down from generation to generation also eventually dissipated into the void, intentionally or not. All of the visitors who chose to stay hope to be the true citizens of Pimuyati. They watch over this planet, playing the role of steward with unwavering enthusiasm. Finally, even believing themselves that this has been and always will be their homeland. 
It seems that no outsider can uncover Pimuyachi's secret, aside from a few wanderers who have been to all corners of outer space. They have the acute perception that people here are so ready to bring up the fact that they are Pimuyatian, and this is something that is most easily forgotten on planets that are ruled by the Aboriginal people. What you just heard was the first part of the story, titled Invisible Planets, from the book The Sound of Salt Forming, short stories by the post-80s generation in China, published by the Foreign Language Teaching and Research Press in 2016. Join us again next time on A Light on Literature for the second part of the story. I'm Huang Rei. See you next time.